The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Chapter 15 last time told us the likeness of the vine and its branches, that he literally was the life of his people just as a branch grows off the vine and bears fruit. That's a very consoling thought, very positive thought, that Christ loves us and is with us and is our very life, and we have fruitfulness because of him. But the text turns in a definitely opposite direction now at verse 18 of John 15. Listen as I read the words of Jesus. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is the Word of our God. As a child growing into my young teens in the late 50s and I guess right about to the mid-1960s, I had the ability to witness a strong friendship between two men. One was my father, and the other was a neighbor four doors away, a man named Lee. My dad and Lee were both at that time in their 30s, advancing towards age 40 or so. Both had young families. Lee didn't have a son. He had two daughters, and I think he almost regarded me as like his son in the way he treated me. And these two men, my dad and Lee, shared a common interest in building things, remodeling things. They both were interested in improving their homes, putting addition. We put an addition on and 
Lee did some major renovations, and they worked together on Saturdays and shared if one bought a certain kind of power tool, the other bought the other power tool so they wouldn't have to both spend their money. And they were cooperative and great friends for quite a long time. At age 39, though, my dad experienced something in his life in terms of a dramatic encounter with Christ as his Savior and Lord, and it changed my dad very dramatically, both in outward behavior but in inner nature, and that change endured until we lost him and he went home to heaven at age 81. He was one of the most thoroughly converted men I've ever known. Christ really was his life. He really was a branch of the vine that Jesus was talking about. And therefore, especially as a new Christian, I know my dad witnessed boldly to many people, including his friend Lee. Well, that shouldn't have been that much of a problem because Lee was a member of a Protestant church. He sang in the choir. But later, as I was able to look at this from a bit more mature view and one day, years after, discussed it with my dad, I realized that Lee's church was very liberal and formal. And you might say that he belonged to that brand of Christianity that said, well, get baptized, try hard to obey the Ten Commandments, but don't ever talk about God in personal terms. So you can imagine that my dad's newly converted zeal to talk about Jesus was not well received. And in fact, Lee backed away and told my dad to his face he thought he'd become a fanatic. And the door of friendship rather abruptly closed. The cooperative building project stopped. More tragically than that, 20 years later, I was an adult and remember my dad telling me that Lee, who had been a chain smoker all his life in his late 50s, was in a hospital with incurable lung cancer and probably would die soon and did actually die soon after that. My dad once more went with Bible in hand to try, out of love, to tell his friend about Christ. And Lee formally and firmly declined to hear that witness. So not only was there the tragedy of Lee's death, unwilling to really acknowledge Christ as his Lord, but another lighter tragedy of my dad experiencing Christian persecution. Persecution because he bore a witness to the Lord, and it was rejected, and it ended a fine friendship. Now, that's not nearly as bad as the persecution, of course, of dying in a Roman arena with lions tearing you apart or something like that. But it nevertheless is persecution. Persecution has many dimensions. You've heard as I have. I had started on this sermon, I assure you, and was working on this subject when three days ago a crazed young adult in Roseburg, Oregon, pulled out his guns against his fellow college students. And at least in the report, I think still not entirely confirmed, but report from eyewitnesses say that this gunman asked a room full of students, tell me what your religion is. You've read this and heard it. If they said, I'm a Christian, it is said they were shot immediately in the head. That too, of course, is Christian persecution. No other, no higher secular authority than the New York Times. The Times once reported this years ago, the 
summary number of 70 million that they set, and it's possibly a little bit arbitrary, but it's not a wildly exaggerated number, 70 million individuals who across 20 centuries of Christian history have lost their lives simply because they were Christians. 70 million martyred for the faith from the time of Jesus until today. But I know that I find, and yet I believe it, even more amazing than that total. The fact that the Times and other authorities say that fully two-thirds of those 70 million died for their faith, not in the first or second or third century. Two-thirds died since the beginning of the 20th century. I was talking to Jim O'Connor, one of our elders, about what I'd be preaching on as he was preparing to teach our refugee class this morning, and he said, well, they will respond to this. They know what persecution is. Some of you have known better than anyone else here in your countries what persecution is. In our study of the farewell discourse of Jesus beginning in John 14, we've heard the Lord tell about the wonderful truth of how He Himself, by the Holy Spirit, is joined inseparably to the life of believers so that they are like branches of a living vine. That's a wonderful thing, positive all the way. We're joined to Christ. He's present with us and in us. What could be better to hear than that? But now we see how at verse 18 this chapter turns abruptly, and Jesus begins to give a warning, a a warning that he hopes will prepare them for the future, and says, look, just as you are bound to me and to each other in a unique love, you're going to find yourselves separate from non-believers by their arrogant hostility. Disciples who are identified by love for Christ and one another are going to meet up with non-disciples who hate them for the same reason. It was a fact, we know, that of the 11 disciples who heard this message as Jesus spoke it here in John 15 and 16, of the 11 that remained, 10 met violent deaths for their faith. Only John, who penned the words, of this gospel died a natural death of old age. And it's remarkable. They must have gotten this message. It, it did sink in because we look in a very early day of the church in Acts 5, 41, when Peter and other apostles unnamed were, were harassed by the Jewish Sanhedrin for preaching about Christ. They were brought in. It says they were beaten. They were jailed. And then the next morning they were let go with a threat The threat was, don't speak this name of Jesus anymore. And they went out into the streets speaking the name of Jesus. And it says they left that council rejoicing to be counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. Every society on earth has some natural inborn hostility to that person in its midst which is the stranger or the the alien, the eccentric one. Well, Jesus was certainly the eccentric one amid, amid the Jewish church of Jerusalem in his day. 
He came pronouncing universal judgment for human sin. He came saying obedience to the law alone wouldn't save you. Doing things that looked outwardly good wouldn't save you. And those who heard him and came to him in repentance and in faith found salvation. But those who would not come to him began to snarl at him. Now, I'm not going to suggest to you that in this new era, and we are in a new era if you don't realize it, of spiritual decline and moral decline in the United States of America, having departed from the things of our God, that we are necessarily all going to be lined up and shot in a few days or a few years or anything else. But I will tell you that the kind of persecution my father experienced, and even worse, ridicule, mockery, exclusion, misrepresentation, refusal to communicate, these are all things that you will experience and some of you already have and do on a regular basis. Unless you are hiding your Christian testimony completely under a bushel basket, you will experience some measures of persecution. Let's consider this. We have less time than usual today, but I have three things I want to emphasize from this text. First of all, the statement from Christ that he tells us how the original source of Christian persecution is that mankind has a fist raised against God in his heaven. That's what he really says here. It's not you They will hate you without a cause. In other words, it's not who you are that's the cause of it. It's who I am and who my Father is. And if they raise their fist, it's to God and His Son to whom they're raising it. He's talking here about the secular world, people who are without salvation in Christ, without the insight and knowledge and understanding of the things of God. And Romans 8, 7 says of them, the carnal, fleshly mind, if if it's only thinking in fleshly ways, is at enmity, naturally at enmity with God. If human beings don't have Christ's supernatural life flowing in them, as the vine and branches uh, metaphor has, has talked about, then they also think a certain way about the holy God and about Christ, but it's not a friendly way, and it's not a way of indifference either. It's bitter rejection. You try to think, why did the world so reject Jesus? After all, he came doing good, healing people, speaking comfort, speaking forgiveness. Yes, there were a few times when he struck out with angry words against hypocrites and and those that were teaching false things, but to most people, he certainly was doing nothing but good and conveying kindness. But consider the fact that for those that were not in the understanding of God and in a true faith with God or in Him, he was, Jesus was really like a brilliant searchlight come into a, a dark twilight world. And people could walk around in that twilight world with a lot of ugly things dripping off of their personalities and their minds and their conversations. And and it was dark enough that people didn't really see how ugly things were. Well, here comes a man with a bright searchlight who shines that searchlight on individuals. And all of a sudden, not one thing about you can be hidden. And you do not like that because everything about you is seen by others and it's threatening. You want to shut down that bright light. That's exactly why Jesus was persecuted. 
the light of his righteousness, his divinity, was such that it was hated by those who knew their sins because of him. Here in this chapter, and I don't have time to spend much on this, but he said this is not only about me, it's God, my Father, they're reacting to. He said, these worldly people do not know Him who sent me, God the Father, their Creator. And then he said, they hate my Father. How bizarre to hate a God you don't even know. But that's where this hatred antagonism comes from. It comes not from what you are, but because of the world's reaction to God. Then, of course, the fact is that the world gets the hint that possibly you have some different relationship to this God and Christ that they do not have. They begin to realize that we have this, how they realize it is hard to say, but that even worldly people have a kind of spiritual sense about them, but it's, it's the wrong sense, the, the wrong side of things. But they understand somehow, innately, intuitively, that Christians have a borrowed righteousness. We don't have our own righteousness, but the Scripture says we have borrowed righteousness from Christ. He has covered our sin, and we then have in us the actual work of the Holy Spirit going onward from that day that we profess faith, changing us, changing our loyalties, our goals, our pleasures, our objectives, our conversation, And we probably begin to look more like different people than we even realize. In fact, one person said worldly-minded people are kind of like bloodhounds who sniff out the traces of contact with Jesus Christ on a Christian. That makes me think of 2 Corinthians 2.14 that says, We are before God the aroma of Christ. To those being saved, we are the fragrance of life. You know how you meet another Christian out there in the workplace or various associations. You don't really know for sure that this is what you say. There's something about that person. I think he might be a Christian. And you find out he is or she is. Well, just the other way too. It says that to those who are perishing, we are the smell of death. And the bloodhound nose of the world smells that borrowed righteousness of Jesus when it's on us, when it has changed us, when we don't laugh at the same things, when we don't dive headfirst into the same pleasures and indulgences, when we don't have the same objectives in our lives. And it's obvious. We possess the new life of Christ. Even faintly reflected, they catch the reflection. And therefore, they begin to treat us the way they treat Christ, and the way they treat God. The original source of Christian persecution is mankind's fist raised to heaven. Well, secondly, our text says Christian persecution draws a line in the sand between believers and the world. Among the great mythological, no, not totally mythological, but tales of my boyhood that I loved was, of course, the story of Davy Crockett. If you really get to know me, someday you might be able to see this picture of me seven years old in my Davy Crockett suit. My wife will probably show it to you for the payment of $50 or so. But Davy Crockett was a hero. You remember Davy Crockett was at the Alamo, and Walt Disney made a movie of Davy Crockett at the Alamo. Dramatic scene. It's time. There's 50 million Mexicans who are going to overrun 
the fort and Colonel Travis, the commander, gets out his sword and draws a line in the dirt and says, okay, men, this probably means death. Who is going to stay and defend the fort? The rest of you would be able to try to escape. And every man led by Davy Crockett stepped over that line. Well, I'm saying to you that Christian persecution draws a line in the sand between believers in the world, and we are asked time and again to step over the line. And you don't necessarily just do it once. Sometimes you have to do it almost every day. This world, worldly people that Jesus is talking about are under the government of pride, power, money, sensual pleasure, a lot of other things. Whose power and authority are we under? We hope the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to seriously examine, Christian friends, on a regular basis, this question, how much are you driven in daily activities, maybe more than you really think, by gaining the applause and acceptance of your peers, either at your job, at your school, in your neighborhood, among your relatives? You know, we all want to be received well, don't we? No, not many people say, I want to be the most obnoxious person in the world. We want to be thought well of. And we try to act in ways that people will think well of us. But many times, if we're looking for the, the applause or the acceptance of those whose goals are entirely worldly things, we've got to stop and check ourselves here. We cannot live in a manner pleasing to God and His Word and simultaneously strive all the time for the applause of those who are ignorant of that word and even spiritually opposed to it. Whose praise? Whose praise do you really want most to gain? Jesus said a pungent word on another occasion in Luke chapter 6, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers did so for the false prophets. False prophets are able to get praise from worldly people. But obviously, we want something different. Jesus here in our text prepared disciples that they would have a lifetime of preaching truths and living by truths that other people's ears and eyes were shut against. We must know this, that we will be standing for things that other people are either completely ignorant. They'll say, what in the world is, is causing you to act that way? And maybe you're going to have to tell them and not, you know, that kind of answer that doesn't really tell them anything. There will be times when for our behavior we will be discredited, we will be smirked at, we will be perhaps passed over for advancement in a place of work. Certainly people will say things with words against us and maybe, who knows, it would even come to physical blows, or death. I love a quote from a great man of God, Samuel Rutherford, a Puritan, from the time just after the Reformation in Scotland. Rutherford experienced a great deal of persecution. I wrote this in the beginning of your worship service today under the reflection part there, if you didn't see it before. Rutherford said, if you do not stand out as a stranger in this world, the hounds of this world will not bark at you. Are the hounds barking? You should expect it. 
whatever persecution we might taste is actually just a recognition of who we belong to, who we are obeying. If you had a teapot and took it on Antiques Roadshow and you got a lot of attention and admiration from the appraiser and he pointed out to you that on the bottom of the teapot was a a stamp with the initials PR, and that represents the name Paul Revere, you would say, wow, I have a Paul Revere teapot worth, I don't know, $100,000 or something. The mark of the maker on the teapot makes all the difference. It's the maker's mark seen on you. My time is short, so I bring you to the conclusion here. I'm just bringing out one point from the last portion, verses 26 to 16.4. And I state it to you this way, that Christian witness is bound to advance even against the worst of opposition. We, it would seem like this is a grim subject, all negative. The world hates us. The world mistreats us. The world rejects us for Jesus' sake. Well, Bear this in mind. Earlier in his ministry, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you, blessed, when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. When they do all that, even though it's false, you're blessed. And he went on and said, Rejoice! For great is your reward in heaven, for just so did they persecute the prophets who were before you. Persecution is actually a cause for thanksgiving to God. There's no place, if it's true persecution, for the right reason, for self-pity when it comes to us. In fact, verse 26 and 27 here say that the witness of the Holy Spirit will be heard even through us, even through our weakness, witnessing to others about the truth of Christ. I was talking to a pastor, not in our presbytery, a man I know outside our area, who's planting a new church, and we were discussing difficulties of church planting and his encouragements and discouragements. And he said, well, it, it seems like the church advances five steps forward, and then the enemy gets involved, and we get pushed back three steps. Well, I, as a brilliant mathematician, was able to bring this to his attention that if he had advanced five steps forward and got pushed back three steps, he was two steps farther ahead than when the persecution and the difficulty came. God's Word advances as the Holy Spirit works, even under persecution and obstacles brought in by worldly men. Notice what Jesus said here in 16.4. It's a prophecy. He said, the time is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. This isn't a vague prophecy, is it? How long did it take that to come true? You remember a guy named Saul of Tarsus? This exactly predicts what Saul did in a very, very short time after this, a matter of decades. Here's Saul out there killing Christians with a license from the Jerusalem church to do it. And what happened to him? Isn't it true the hunter became the hunted one? On the Damascus Road, Paul was turned completely around in his life, gave himself to the lordship of Christ, stopped killing Christians, and who got more persecution rained down on his head than any other figure just about in the apostolic time? The apostle Paul. 
God is in control of the results of persecution. And even when it comes fiercely against his people, he can use it for his glory. Now, here's here's the danger that I would leave you with. The danger is that we might not even recognize. We might say, all right, I've heard the sermon. I've heard that Christians get persecuted. But we don't even recognize the temptation that comes day by day in subtle ways, and sometimes not so subtle, to accommodate ourselves to the ways and the thinking and the behavior of the world. You see, again, we want to be approved of. So our little voice in the brain says, just blend in here. Don't speak up. You know, I, I know you can say, well, that's not what the Bible says, but I don't, I don't need to say that. Don't paint a target on your back, Michael. And it's so easy to obey that voice, just to sort of glide along and think, I'm just going to not make an argument over this. And there are times when that may be the right thing. It takes discernment, you see. But there are other times when just in being quiet, you are disowning the one who suffered the rejection and the spears and arrows and crucifixion of men for you. You see, 1 Peter 4 warns that if you suffer and you're guilty of what you're suffering for, if you're a criminal, if, you're, if you did something really stupid that the law doesn't allow and you're suffering, don't sit there and say, poor me, I'm being persecuted. You're not being persecuted if you're a criminal. But 1 Peter 4 says, if, however, you are insulted for the name of Christ, then you are blessed and the spirit of glory rests upon you. So I leave you with this, another word from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 13. I give you this as a charge, and I give it to myself as well. The writer of Hebrews said this, Let us go to Christ outside the camp. The reminder, Christ doesn't dwell within the walls of worldly thinking. Let us go to Christ outside the camp, bearing the disgraces he bore, For here we have no enduring city, but we look for the city that is to come. Let's pray together. Father, we just tasted here a bit of the warning. May we take it to heart what your Savior himself told us, that we are going to taste the things that he did. Father, may we not be so foolish as to be persecuted for our own follies, But on the other hand, may we not be so cowardly that we live our lives just to be accepted and be pleasing to everyone around us with a worldly view. Give us courage. Give us discernment. Give us a willingness even to be singled out and say, praise to God if I receive anything that my Savior received first. For Jesus' sake, amen.